so thankful for a student ministry that leads by serving, by a generation that we hear so many negative things about, that we hear that they're so consumer-minded and it's all about them. I'm thankful for a church and for a student minister and a student ministry that says that we are going to take this next generation for Christ and we are going to lead them by serving in humility. So I'm so grateful for Caleb and his leadership as he faithfully leads the student ministry there. The last few months, we've been studying the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, we've been looking really the last couple weeks at, at one story in particular. This one story, it spans from Acts chapter 3 all the way to Acts chapter 4. And just a review of where we've been as we're continuing to tell the end of this particular story this Sunday. In Acts chapter 3, it starts with Peter and John who are on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. And on their way to the temple, they find a lame man, a crippled man who could not walk since birth. We know that he was 40 years old and that he was there at this hour of prayer begging for money, knowing that he could probably find some sympathetic people or compassionate people during this time as they're going to pray. Well, Peter looks at him and said, silver and gold, I don't have any, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Luke writes in Acts chapter 3 that immediately his ankles are made strong, that he doesn't hobble up, that immediately he stands up, he jumps, he's leaping, and he runs into the temple praising God. Well, we know that he had been there for years and years, maybe decades, that he had been sitting at what was called the, the beautiful gate, which is as close you could get to the temple without getting into the temple. And so we know that there must have been hundreds, if not thousands of people who knew this crippled man, and now he's made well. So Peter capitalizes on this um, experience, this miracle that was done through Jesus. He's very careful not to take any credit for himself. And he begins to tell them, look, it's all about this miracle was given to you so that you might understand that you need salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. As we move into chapter 4, they're arrested because of what they're teaching. Now remember, they're arrested not because of what they believe. It was okay to believe privately that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were in trouble. They were um, arrested because they were publicly telling other people that if you want to receive salvation, if you want to have peace with God, the only way for you to receive this salvation is through trusting the name of Jesus Christ. And there's two verses that stick out to me in the first part of Acts chapter 4 that we read um, last Sunday. The first one is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. I believe that is the most concise, clear statement of the gospel of anywhere. You got John 3, 16 and Acts 4, 12, to where Peter looks at the people and he says, listen, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Hard to make it much more clear than that, isn't it? But then he goes on in verse 13, and Luke, as he's writing about Peter and John, uh, I said it was kind of humorous if they went back and read it. He says, listen, these were uneducated common men. And he's telling us that to say there's nothing extraordinary about them. What was extraordinary was the Holy Spirit that was working in and through them. The focus is not on Peter and John. The focus is on the Holy Spirit working through Peter and John. And then it says, what I, I think is so unbelievable, at verse, the end of verse 13, it says, they recognized that these men had been with who? Jesus. They recognized that these men had been with Jesus. So the Sadducees, or the ruling high court authority, they say, all right, we're going to release you, but you can go, but do not speak in the name of Jesus. Don't speak about anything you've seen. Don't speak about anything you've heard. And they say, hey, listen, 
It's up to you. Judge for yourself who, who we must believe. But we can't help but speak about what we have seen and what we've heard. And that's where we pick up the story this morning, at the last part of Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 through 28. I've divided this last section of chapter 4 into three different parts. The first part is we're going to look at verses 23 through 28. We're going to notice what did they pray. So what specifically did they pray? And then we're going to look, the next few verses, what did they not pray? Let's take a note of what they didn't ask God for. And then finally, what were the results of um, them praying and what God did through them in verses 32 through 35. So let's start in verses 23 through 38, I mean, excuse me, 23 through 28, and see what they did pray. Luke writes these words, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what we read here is that after Peter and John, after they're released, they run and they go to their friends and they find that their friends are, are, have been praying for them. And notice that as soon as they they get there, they begin to celebrate, and their first response, their first reaction is to pray. Now, regrettably, talking about myself, you can include yourself if you want to say that you fit in this category as well. My first response to good news isn't normally to pray. Now, give me some bad news. Tell me something that's horrible. That usually is my first response. Then I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. But when good news happens, that's not normally my first response. But what we can learn from the first church is that was their instinct. They were praying under any and all circumstances that when good news happened, when when Peter and John are released and they're sent back to them, their first response is to pray. And what stands out about this prayer? The theme of this prayer that they're praying, particularly in verses 24 through 26, the theme of that prayer is God's sovereignty. It's that God is in control, that God has complete power over this situation. Now, I don't want you to miss the the structure of this prayer. Many times when we pray, many times when we have the opportunity to go before the Lord our first response, our first, the first words that are uttered from our lips or come from our hearts are selfish, are they not? God, here's my situation. I need you to respond. God, here's what I'm going through. Here's what, even if it's about my, my friend, here's what my friend's going through. I'm coming to you on their behalf. And our first response through prayer is normally, let me tell you what I need from you. But how did the early church begin their prayer? They began not by saying, here's the action that we need. They began by praying and thanking God for his character. They praised God for who he was to them, not for what he could do for them. Not saying, God, this is what I need from you. God, I'm going to begin this prayer by recognizing who you are and thanking you for who you are. They knew and they understood that God was in complete control. 
Because they believed in God's sovereignty, because they believed in God's power, this was the foundation for their prayer. God, you've always been in control. You've had this situation. Even when we didn't know what was going on, we trusted that you were in control. We trusted that you were God. And because they knew that God was in control, they could pray with confidence. What we can learn from this and what we can ask ourselves is, do we tend to pray with that same confidence? When we go before the creator of the universe, when we go before the Lord of lords and the king of kings and we approach him in prayer, are we approaching him with the foundation that, God, you are in complete control? This has never escaped your hands in the first place. And once they recognized that God was in control, once they worshiped him for who he was, then the early church did something that was pretty interesting, I think. What did they begin to do in verses 25 and 26? They quoted scripture. Verses 25 and 26 are direct quotes from Psalm chapter 2. We have so much that we could learn from the early church. How many times in our life have we found ourselves in seasons or in weeks or months or days that we thought, God, I don't even know what to pray in this situation. I don't even know how to respond. I don't even know, God, what's the right thing for me to pray in this situation? I think if we had looked at the early church, we'd say, we need to pray God's word. How many promises are there in God's word that we have not taken hold of simply because we don't know God's word and then we don't take them before him in prayer? Now understand, I'm not saying that that means that we just do what some denominations or some people do and say, name it and claim it. I'm just going to open up, this is what the verse says, and I'm going to, no, we've got to read scripture in context. But at the same time, we can't be afraid to know scripture and to claim the promises that are in God's word. You say, well, I don't even know what to pray. Let me, let me help you here. Three books. One is by Beth Moore. It's Praying God's Word. There's a, a, a verse for every season, everything that you're going through. If you want to say, man, how do I know how I can claim God's truth in my life, how I can pray God's Word? This is a great book. Many of us have children. We're praying for protection for our children. We're praying for their salvation. We're praying for their friendships. We're praying that they're going to grow up to make an impact. This is a book filled praying the scriptures for your children. Nothing but, but scriptures that you can pray for your kids. Or maybe you say, well, I don't have a kid now, but I've got adult children. There's even a book praying the scriptures for your adult children. But open up your worship guide. And inside, I want you to see a little uh, booklet that was made. It's called Praying Scripture. Victoria McKenzie made this. I asked her for a half page, and she made a booklet that is absolutely incredible that I believe this may be one of the best, most practical tools this church has ever given you. This has 15 different verses that you can pray according to God's word. And if you say, I don't know what to pray, I said 15. There's actually 18 ways that you can pray God's word. I want to encourage you, put this inside your Bible. Put this on your nightstand. Keep this in your car. If you say, I don't even know how to pray God's word, here's 18 ways to start how you can pray Scripture. We see the early church, they used Scripture as a way to ignite their prayer. Their prayers were guided and controlled by Scripture. The, the amazing thing about God is that we should pray, God tells us, with the same boldness that they prayed with. But the only way that we can pray in confidence, the only way we can pray in boldness is beginning with that foundation of trusting that God is in complete control. I had a Sunday school teacher when I was in high school. And my Sunday school teacher, I, I distinctly remember this prayer because this prayer would come up over and over again. And the teacher would say this, God, 
We are so thankful that you are not up in heaven, wringing your hands, caught off guard by what just took place. And that just gave me such confidence. God is never up in heaven. Oh man, I didn't see that happening. Oh no, that, 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 that wasn't supposed to. No, no, God is always on his throne. He is always aware of what is going on. He's never caught off guard. And the amazing thing about our God is the scripture tells us that God can even take the wickedness of man and fold it and use it into his perfect will. Only God can do that, right? You don't believe me? How about the story of Joseph? Story of Joseph, my favorite story in the Old Testament. Beginning in the fall, I'm, I'm going to teach for 12 weeks on just the story and the narrative of Joseph. And Joseph, you remember, he was loved by his dad, but not so loved by his brother, sold into slavery. And then many years later, he, he ends up being reunited with his brothers. And let me tell you how the story ends here. But by the way, if I tell you the ending, that doesn't mean you get to skip the next 12 weeks, all right? I just thought about that. You know the end of the story. Genesis 50, 20, he's reunited with his brothers and he says this, as for you, you brothers, man, you meant it for evil, but God, aren't you thankful for those but God phrases in the Bible? But God meant it for good to bring about many people that should be kept alive as they are today. God can use your mistakes and your failures I heard a sermon one time and it said that your failures are not fatal, that God can still use your mistakes. So in the next few verses in verses 29 through 31, I want us to notice what they didn't pray. But I've really wrestled with this because I wanted us to try to put ourselves in Peter and John's situation. I wanted to put ourselves in the early church. And at this point, there are probably, um, we know, we don't probably, we know there are 8,000 men that have trusted Christ between Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. Now again, when you include women and children, we're looking at 16 to 20,000 people that just from Acts, um, from the beginning of Acts, that have trusted Christ as Savior. So what would it have been like if we were to put ourselves in their shoes when this happened? And what would we have prayed so I wrestled and I tried to come up with a, a modern day equivalent of what it would be. And this is not perfect. I'm sure you can poke holes in all, all these claims, but, but just humor me for a minute and let's try to put this in context. Let's pretend that two of our people, let's say two of our Sunday school teachers, not even staff members, two of our lay people, um, they go on a mission trip to Cuba. And while they're in Cuba, their goal is to share Christ. And they are, are encouraging pastors. They're working with churches. They are telling other people about Jesus. And while they're there, they are arrested. They're arrested, and the Cuban government is trying to decide what they're going to do with our, our Sunday school teachers. So we, as their church family, we gather together in this room, and we are fervently praying, and we are praying that God would protect them and release them and, and that God would do his will. And while we're praying, through those front doors in walks those two teachers. Imagine the rejoicing that would take place. Imagine how thankful we would be. And after we've rejoiced, after we've high-fived, after we said, oh, isn't our God good? And then we pray. Would our prayers be something like this? God, thank you for protecting them. Thank you for saving them. Please protect them now. Please, please keep them from being harmed. Lord, please protect us because we know now they're going to come after us. Do all that you can. Keep us safe. Protect us. Give us a hedge of protection. And by the way, about our enemies over there, about the government over there, would you go show them who you are? Would you go give them a little dose of your justice? Isn't that all we would pray? Let's see how 
they end up praying in verses 29 and 31. After they've rejoiced, this is their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't ask God to spare them from future conflict, did they? They didn't say, God, make sure that we never are harmed again. Make sure that we are never arrested again. They prayed for one particular thing, boldness. They prayed, God, would you allow your servants to the blessing of speaking your word of truth with great boldness? Now understand here, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for protection. It's never wrong to pray for our kids' protection or your grandchildren or when you're in harm's way. There are tons of Scripture filled with uh, telling us that we can pray to our God who is our protector. But what I am saying is that as we pray for protection, we must also ask God, just as those Christians did in the early church, that God would give us strength to endure the dangers that come when we are faithful to the gospel ministry. Let's don't just become so obsessed with safety that we don't pray for strength and endurance to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. After all, Jesus told his followers in John 15, what did he say in John 15, 18? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I think the problem is today we've forgotten that verse. We are surprised when the world hates what we believe in. We're caught off guard when the world actually is offended that we would believe the words of Jesus. Now, let's just be honest with each other for a minute. Most of us here want to be liked, right? I know there's one person with your arms folded right now saying, well, pastor, I really, really don't care if people like me or not. They don't like you, okay? I'll go ahead and tell you, all right? <laughs> Most of us... If someone's wife just elbowed their husband, you're in big trouble right now, all right? Listen, most of us want to be like, there's a draw to want to be liked. And hear me on this, there's nothing inherently evil about wanting to be liked unless it makes you soften your stance upon God's word. Unless it makes you try to say that I'm gonna try to make Jesus more acceptable to my friends so that I will be liked by others. The Bible has a lot to say about this. King Solomon, the wisest person in all the earth, said this in Proverbs 29, 25. He said, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. The fear of man, the desire to be accepted, the wanting of the applause of man, Solomon says it's a trap. It does not work. When we live for that desire to be accepted, when we desire to be loved by other people, you know what it does to us? It makes us a slave to their approval. And by the way, in the, in the scope of eternity, it really doesn't matter. What we can understand, there's an illustration that C.S. Lewis gives. And when he's talking about the desire to receive the approval of man as opposed to pleasing God, he says it's like being afraid of a kitten and yet having no fear of a lion. 
How many of us would go up to a little baby kitten and say, oh, kitten, I'm so scared. Please don't kill me. Please don't hurt me. And then yet go up into the face of a lion and slap him in the face. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? But friends, whenever we have the desire for the approval of our coworkers, whenever we live for the approval of our teammates, whenever we live for the applause of that person sitting next to us at that Little League baseball game, more than we desire the approval of God, you know what we've just done there? We have shown exactly who our God truly is. All the more in the days that we are living in, as Christians will continue to be called, I believe, until Jesus returns, we will continue to be called haters. We will continue to be called intolerant. We will continue to be called bigots because of that we stand on God's word. And more and more in this time, the, the tendency is going to be, let's just make sure that, that we, we, we soften a little bit what we believe. Let's just, let's just not, not make the edges so rough around the corner. And whatever, you, just believe what you want to believe. Remember last week? That's fine. Just privatize your own faith. Don't tell other people that they're wrong. That, that, that's when we get in trouble today. So here's the question. How is the church to operate in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what we believe and embrace? And let me personalize it. How are we as individual Christians, as followers of Jesus who believe every word of this book, how are we to operate in a culture that will not change, I believe, until Jesus comes back, that is continually hostile to the claims of Jesus? Look again at how the first church responded in verse 29. When you look at verse 29, you'll understand we aren't the first people to face this. This was going back all the way to the first Christians. In verse 29, when you read that verse, you see two things. They say, God, look upon our enemies. Remember their threats. Don't forget them. Do what you want to do. And then verse 2, grant your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, remember their threats. You're God. you got a long memory. Remember those and then give us the boldness to speak whenever those opportunities present themselves. And look at the results in verse 31. The result says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 31, what happened? Two things. They prayed for boldness, and they walked in boldness. They prayed, God, would you give us this boldness? And then when he gave it to them through the power of the Holy Spirit, they walked in that boldness. You see, the default position for most dying churches today, when they find themselves in an environment, as we do today, that is hostile to the claims of Jesus, that it finds the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus offensive, the, 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 what they are going to claim is they're going to say, well, let's just soften the stances of, of the Bible in order to, and they'll make it feel better by this, in order to win people for Jesus. Because really, it's all about Jesus, Right? Let's don't worry about this marriage issue over here. Let's don't worry about what Jesus says about sexuality because it's really all about Jesus. In fact, it's all, don't worry. We can tinker with this or that. We can not worry about this. Let's just don't mess up with Jesus. Let's just focus on Jesus. Let's do whatever it takes to make Jesus more acceptable to our culture. But church, what happens every single time that we see churches that try to soften the stances of the Bible, what ends up being discovered is it's not just these issues that are offensive to them, it's Jesus himself who is offensive to them. So what goes out the window next? 
Once a church, once a faith is willing to say, we're going to pick and choose which parts of the, t- of the Bible we're going to believe, once they do that, the next thing that normally goes out the window is that salvation is found only through Jesus. And instead, it's replaced with, let's just do good things for people. So you have people that come together in churches and they'll say, let's let's build uh, food pantries, let's build clothing closets, let's do all that we can as the people of God to alleviate the pain and suffering in this world. And yes, my, my, my answer to that is yes and amen, let's go and do that. But friends, hear me, but to neglect our people's greatest need, which is salvation, which is a savior, to simply engage their felt needs, it does nothing in the long term to change their hearts, their situations, or the world around them. What the gospel comes and offers us is a transformed life. The gospel comes to us and gives us a changed worldview. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, it may not change your situation. You may not be healed of cancer. You may not have that prodigal child come back to you. But what the gospel does do for us is now you have been changed. You now have a different perspective. You are now living in the light of eternity, understanding this world is not our home. And because you have been changed, you will want to go out and you will want to live counterculturally. Friends, if we stop preaching in the atonement of Jesus, that's a big fancy word, which means if we stop preaching that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, what we will do is we will remove the lamp into our feet and the light into our path, which leads to the direction, the changed life that Christ has called us to to back away from the claims of Scripture simply because our culture finds them offensive is to wave the white flag of Jesus' teaching and to say, "Create the Creator no longer knows what's best for His creation. Now, in 2018, creation now knows what's best, not the Creator. That, my friends, is madness. How could we ever say that? But we see it happening all over the place, don't we? We see it happening under the banner of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We see it in churches, and we see it in entire denominations today. They say things like this, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that today. Sure, maybe they've interpreted the Bible like that for thousands of years, but if God knew how cruel those teachings were, he would change his mind. That was just for those people back then. Surely that's not true today. God wouldn't be so mean and cruel to his people. Surely God wants them to have the desires of their heart, right? Friends, if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Just because we live in 2018, Jesus Christ does not need a facelift. We don't need to change the teachings of Scripture. He doesn't need for you and for me and for our church to make him look good. Guess what? He is good. You know why he's good? Because he comes to you and me, a sinner, and he says, this is not the life I have for you. I know that you think this is a great life, but if you continue upon this path, it is going to lead to destruction. This isn't the life I have for you. This is the life that I offer you, and I give it to you through my son, Jesus Christ. I know what's best for you. Follow my path, and I will lead you to eternal life. Friends, that's not cruel. That's gracious. What would be cruel is for God to come to you and say, well, I know that's what you want, so I'm just going to go and give it to you. Go just follow your heart. Do whatever your heart does. That would be cruel. How many of us have children or grandchildren? And there's been different situations, and they've come to us, and they've said, mom or dad or, or grandma or granddad, I really want this. 
And you know in your life experience and your wisdom and all that you've been, you know it's not not what's best for them. It's going to cause them harm in the end. And they beg you and they say, "But, but dad, I promise, I know you think this is bad, but I promise this is what I really, really, really want. This happens particularly at bedtime, right? Um, I, I promise, I know that you think it's bad, but you don't give it to them, do you? Why do you not give it to them? Because you love them. It's madness to think that God would say, well, I can tell you really want that. And since that's what you really want, I'll go ahead and give it to you. That's not our God. Friends, we are to be bold. That's what we've been talking about. But at the same time, we're to be gracious. We are to be bold, yet gracious people. Do we believe what the Bible teaches about sexuality? Absolutely. Do we believe what the Bible teaches about marriage? 100%. Do we believe that it's the primary teachings of Scripture? Nope. Do we believe that they're important? Extremely important. We do not waver. But we're not cruel. We're not self-righteous about it. We understand that people who are struggling with sins, that they are real people. They're not statistics. They're not a project. They are real people who are hurting more than likely going through difficulties in their life because of something that happened to them in their past. People who struggle, who hurt, if we're honest with ourselves, they probably don't feel accepted in our church. Let's just cut to the core right here. In fact, chances are in a room this size, there's someone here that's going through a secret sin in their life, or maybe it's a public sin, and you feel so uncomfortable right now. Because this is First Baptist Church Decatur, because of the facility, because of whatever it might be, you think, if you knew my sin, you wouldn't even accept me. Chances are every single one of us, we know someone that we are afraid to even invite to church here because we're afraid that that what they're going to think about what we think about them. Friends, listen to me. If you knew what I struggled with, if you knew what the person in the pew sitting next to you struggled with, you would understand that each and every one of us, we are all in need of God's grace. We all have different struggles, and the gospel is true for every single one of us. The message of the gospel is this, and that is that the pardon is on the table, that your death sentence has been paid for by Christ. But here's the thing. You have to choose whether you're going to accept it or not. God has offered it to you. It's free of charge but you have to choose to accept or reject the gift of salvation. We have to be bold, standing on God's word, but we must be gracious at the same time, loving people, because that's exactly what our God does. And finally, the result in verse 32 and 35. Let's see what happens. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So the people of God, it's another fancy word for the church, So the church, they were a people marked by their generosity. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. When's he going to pass the offering plate again? Not going to happen. It is talking about finances, but I want to talk about something even more important right now. 
They were a people marked by generosity with their time. The local church, First Baptist Church specifically, we should be the place where the most difficult people in our community, the most challenging people that we come across, they should find hope here. They should find grace here. They should find the people that are going through difficult times. They should find a group of people who are willing to walk alongside them all the way through the long haul, not just give you a week. No, no, no. We don't want to be a group of people that are marked by the, you, you got, got a difficult time, but we'll pat you on the back. We'll send you a text message. We'll take you a casserole, but then we're done with you because we got to move on. We've done our good deed and now it's time to face someone else. No, we want to walk alongside those who are hurting. We want to rally alongside them. We want to be a people that says, we're going to put you on our back right now because right now you're not able to walk, but we're going to walk for you. We're going to carry that load for you. We are to love, serve, and encourage them until the end. Not just a few days, not until we get tired of the struggle because now it's an invasion of my life. We are to walk alongside them. Those who are struggling they should find a refuge among the people of God. Those that have been through sexual disorders, those that have been through sexually abused, those that have gone through eating disorders, those that have been mentally and physically abused, those that are dealing with depression, hear me on this, the immigrant, the refugee, those that are going through a difficult time because they're praying for a prodigal child, they of all people should enter into this place and find that we are the most gracious people they've ever met in the face of the world because we love God. That's a dangerous place, Pastor. You know what you're opening yourself up to? You start saying that we want to be a refuge for the outcast, for the immigrant, for the refugee, for those that are going through sexual identity crisis. You, that's, that, you know what you're opening? Your, yeah, I, I am. But you know what? Life can be dangerous. Why would we not, as people of the gospel, when our lives have, be tra- have been transformed, why would we not say that we want to be known as the most generous people on the face of Decatur? That's countercultural. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What makes us countercultural is this, watch. When people tend to praise us, we immediately look for a way to bring God into the mix. When people tend to say, oh man, look how great, we, we constantly are bringing God into the mix because we understand we're not awesome. We're not even good. There's nothing good within us. And as Christians, we understand that apart from the grace of God, there is nothing. Our our righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags before him. So let me ask you this. When someone applauds you for something good that takes place in your life, Maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's a raise, maybe it's a good test score, maybe it's an ACT score, maybe it's an athletic achievement that you have. What's your initial response? Is your initial response to turn and give credit and glory to God? Or is it to begin to tell them, well, here's how hard I worked for this. Here are the steps that I took in order to get where I am. Church, we are storytellers. And we have one thing to praise. We have one person to praise, in fact. And it's not us. That's countercultural. We don't beat our chest. We have nothing to beat our chest about. So let me wrap this up. I know I'm going to go long here, but let me wrap this up. How do we apply this message? It's one thing to say, okay, I got it. They prayed for boldness. They walked in boldness. They were supposed to believe the Bible and be gracious. Good. No, no. How do we do what the early church did? How do we say, God... 
allow your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What does that even mean? I'm tempted right here. I was tempted this week to find a story of a missionary that sold everything that they had that was part of a church and went to some third world country, and that was bold. And that may be what God's calling you to do. If it is, you need to do it. But if I shared that illustration for 99% of us, oh, we're off the hook. God hadn't called me to do that. Sorry, you're not off the hook today. But you know what? When we think of boldness, most of us, we need to start somewhere. Most of us, we're beginners when it comes to being bold. The very idea of being bold for Jesus, let's just be honest, it freaks us out, doesn't it? We think that now we're going to have to carry a sign around our neck that says John 3.16, have a megaphone, and go down 6th Avenue yelling, repent for the end is near, right? That's what we think that bold being bold. No, 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 that's just not what being bold is. When it comes to boldness, some of us, we just need baby steps. So let me give you five baby steps. Hope that's not offensive. Five baby steps for boldness for beginners. But here's the catch. If you're a Christian, if you've committed your life to being a follower of Jesus, you can do one of these things. No one's off the hook. No free skate this time, all right? One of the five ways. Number one, say something when saying nothing would be easier. Maybe that's how you can be bold this week. You know what I'm talking about. You're having that conversation with that friend and you've got the Spirit of God. That's what that, that, when your heart starts racing, more than likely it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit convicting you to say something. And you think, oh, but it's going to make this relationship a little tense. It's going to make some, some, um, some, some tension between that relationship. Maybe God's saying right now, the way you can be bold, say something when saying nothing would be easier. Now, say it in love, all right? Don't say it and then walk away and then give him a card to invite him First Baptist, all right? I'm saying say it in love, but say something when saying nothing would be easier. Number two, take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Stephen Purrier always prays this prayer. God, would you allow me to be a blessing to someone today? And would you allow me to see it and take advantage of it? Two examples of ways that you can take advantage of opportunities. Number one, offer to pray for someone. This week, chances are someone's going to come by, whether it's your house, whether it's work, whether it's they're going to be um, at Target or want, and they're going to say, let me tell you about what this struggle I'm going. Let me tell you about this difficulty. You know what you can do? Can I pray for you? And don't just leave and then don't pray. We know you're not praying when you go home. All right, let's be honest. Stop right there and say, can I pray for you? Put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them. Let that be your bold witness that you believe in the power of prayer. Offer to pray for someone. How about if you ask someone if you can share your story with them? I'm not saying you have to take the Bible and say, here's the five spiritual laws. But how easy is it to go to a friend that you know is not a Christian and says, can I just tell you about what God's doing in my life? Can I just tell you what happened last week in my family? And only God can take credit for this. That's being bold and turning that conversation to eternal matters. Number three, create opportunities. How can you create opportunities? The first thing you can do, how about inviting your coworkers to lunch? Find someone that you work with or someone that you see and ask them to lunch. And then when they're at lunch, ask them how you can pray for them. No one's going to be offended by that, I promise. Ask them if you can. Can I share you my story? Can I share my story with you? Can I tell you what God's done in my life lately? Ask them to lunch. Maybe you're going to, students, include someone that you don't normally include. Maybe it's a gathering that's going to get together, and you're going to intentionally ask someone else. Because here's the thing. Scott Dawson said it when he was here. We don't tend to drift towards evangelism. We drift away from telling other. We've got to be intentional. Third way we can do it is just take time to get to know your neighbors. 
I admit I'm the world's worst at this, all right? I don't want God to strike me down from the pulpit as I'm sharing this. But sometimes it's easier just to go inside when you come home. But why about just getting to know them and getting to know their story? Number four, get involved in missions. There are so many outreach and missions opportunities to get involved in through First Baptist. Whether it's Seize the Brain, East Acres, Haiti Seas, um, uh, Hispanic Ministry, Haiti, Eyeglass Ministry, our Haiti team that just got back last yesterday from Haiti. There are so many ways. And by the way, if you're a senior adult in this church, I would say that there are more mission opportunities at First Baptist Church Decatur because of Roger Jenkins and because of the emphasis he places on missions than any church in our state. There are opportunities for you to get outside of your comfort zone and serve. The key is get outside of your regular routine and look for opportunities to serve. And fifth and final, and we'll close. Just ask God for boldness. Maybe that's the baby step. God, I admit I'm timid, I'm shy, I'm scared about talking about anything about you. Would you give me boldness? Maybe that's your first step. Because you've heard me say this over and over again, and you're sick of hearing me say this, but I'm going to say it again. Church family, we have been given one life, one opportunity, and we are going to choose how we are going to invest this one life. And it's so easy to get so self-absorbed and so wrapped up in our own world, our own family, our own little neck of the woods, and that we say that we want to live for for this world and we're going to get to eternity and we're going to regret that we wasted so much of our time on ourselves instead of investing our lives in eternal things. Lord, would you grant the blessing for your servants here at First Baptist Church Decatur to speak your word with great boldness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you a humbled people. Humbled first and foremost that in spite of our many, many failures, that you would love us so much that you would send your perfect Holy Son who had no sin in Him, that He would become sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Lord, we simply come before You and say thank You. Lord, we also ask You at this time to forgive us individually, collectively as a church, for times that we have been so inwardly focused. Forgive us for the times that we have lived our lives and we have looked forward to how we can make our lives easier as opposed to how we can advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you plant inside each and every one of us here the desire to be bold in our faith. Many of us in this room are introverts and the thought of speaking up, it scares us to death. But Lord, we know that there are opportunities around us. Would you grant us the blessing of speaking up, of letting our lives exhibit the transformation that took place because our hearts of stone have been, trans, have been replaced with the heart of flesh. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.